Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. San Francisco will be one of eight counties piloting a new and controversial California program designed to help deal with the mental health crisis on our streets. Beginning next month, people with schizophrenia or psychosis can be referred to what are being called care courts, and they could receive a court-ordered care plan. While the bill had strong support in the legislature, critics warned that it threatens the civil liberties of people with mental illness and could lead to harmful coercive care, which, to be clear, has happened in the past. We'll find out how care courts will try to balance between getting people the help they desperately need while preserving the freedoms Americans expect. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. SB 1338 established a new route for pushing people to get help for severe mental illness. You've probably heard of it. It's called Care Court. While the bill passed in 2022, it's now beginning to be implemented in eight counties, including San Francisco. We'll take stock of what the bill was designed to do and how its implementation is proceeding. And we begin with one of the bill's co-authors, Susan Talamantes Eggman, state senator representing California's 5th district in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Valley. Welcome, Senator. Thank you. So what did you see happening in your district that convinced you that you needed to co-author this bill? Uh, well, just to start with, I'm a, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and have worked in and around uh, mental health and substance abuse my entire professional career um and 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 this is i'm finishing up my last term in the legislature so i think what everybody's seen what california has seen which is the continued deterioration uh of those we love of our citizens on the streets all around us and people continuing to feel um helpless to be able to help those who need help the most. So my district is not unlike any other district that has a, a, an urban core or even just more suburban areas now where we see the um, the increase of those who are obviously just to, to the uh, general citizens by yeah. uh, mentally ill and, and dangerous. Senator, so you've been working in this field for a long time, and you know that in the public conversation about this bill, there were real worries about protecting people's civil liberties um, as this bill um, you know, kind of passed into, into legislation. So talk to me about how you tried to take into account the, the need to protect civil liberties while also trying to create this new pathway for help. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, uh, the, the optimum is always the least restrictive of care that every individual needs, right? But you have to meet people where they are. Like if, if somebody comes into the ER with a, uh, a sprained toe, you're going to treat that much different than you're going to treat somebody with a compound fracture of the femur, right? So it's based on the evaluation of what a person needs in any given time. And I think that's how you have to look about balancing some of these civil liberties with their ability to provide for their own self-care and their ability to move through a, a treatment plan. Mm-hmm. What overall impact are you hoping this bill could have, given all the constraints on funding and cost of housing and many other things? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think we've never seen a uh, an administration, a governor who has leaned this this you know much into uh, the issues around mental health and substance abuse, but I I don't think we've ever had a time in our in our history where bipartisan everybody agrees what we're doing is not working, mm-hmm. and so I think that's you know the way you, the, the the path that you have to be able to go forward. So if it's not working, and I, and I would say those who have a um, you know we always have to provide for civil liberties. The the, uh, the basis of being a social worker is um, the value of each individual human being. So that, I mean, that's where we start. Um, and then from there, you have to, again, be based on, on what is uh, appropriate for folks. Um, and I would say sometimes those who argue the strongest for people's civil liberties are those who, who have some kind of financial benefit in it, right? These are professional organizations who argue for people. I mean, there's also you know, the NAMI folks of the world, the, the the family members who have struggled for years watching their loved ones deteriorate on this with no means of. Senator, what do you say to people who just say the system is already strained and it doesn't have the resources to get to accomplish its goals already? And now we're adding kind of another layer to that. You know, one RAND analysis found the state was short, you know, many thousands of psychiatric inpatient treatment beds and residential facility beds. Is there enough funding here to, to accomplish the goals uh, of this legislation? Well, A, I'd say we don't pass legislation. We don't treat somebody's cancer based on what they can afford, right? I mean, so we have to make the system be able to adapt to those. And we are going to start focusing on those with the most severe needs. I would say in the last, uh, since the beginning of COVID, since, the la- since 2020, we have put over $14 billion into our system. Um, the care court was prioritized in the most recent round of the behavioral health uh, funding, which is called the BCHIP. Um, and so uh, just another 900 million just went to provide for the housing. Um, and this segment is not about uh, MHSA, but we've also just redone a redo of MHSA to be able to provide more funding into the system to be able to pay, pay for those with the most need, both through the whole person care and again, through the housing that is finally being able to be created that Californians were promised 60 years ago. And so now the advent of the villages and the cottages and safe places for people to stay will be more readily available in local communities. Uh, one more before we let you go, Senator. You know, Stanislaus County, uh, which is part of the district you represent, one of the counties in the pilot program. Um, how are officials there preparing? They they volunteered. They raised their hand and volunteered and said, um, and and I will say Stanislaus County has been very forward thinking all the way through in dealing with mental health issues. I've gone out multiple times and um, seen the great programs they're putting together, the outreach programs they're putting together. It's really, again, going out and meeting people where they are and then being able to provide for those resources. And Stanislaus County 
just saw this as one more path to be able to help those most in need of help. Uh, and again, help everyday Californians feel good about their government, that they don't have to worry about, you know, hitting somebody on the street in their car in mm-hmm. obvious crisis. Thank you so much, uh, Senator Susan Talmentis Eggman, uh, represents California's 5th District, uh, composed of San Joaquin County, parts of Stanislaw, and Sacramento, uh, co-author of SB 1338, which established Care Court in California. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I want to bring in Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Um, I want you to just work, walk us through how this Care Court's really going to work. I think people probably have some questions about sort of how does this, you know, just how does someone get from needing help to being in care court? So who qualifies? Well, first, that ultimately the court will decide who qualifies and whether someone is qualified. But what uh, this legislation does, and now this law, is it really expands the, the number of people, the kinds of people who can refer, who can petition the court to say, hey, this person who is living on the streets, I think, is un- incapable of taking care of themselves. Uh, and getting well, they are a danger perhaps to themselves and others. And so now a family member can do that, uh, a first responder can do that, the court can do that, a city uh, city agency can do that, uh, social workers. And so it broadens the number of people who can identify people who are on the streets and then petition the court. And there will be a court in each of these counties that will be designated as a care court that will accept these petitions, mm-hmm. look them over, and then have a series of hearings. Uh, and this is not something that's going to be done quickly, uh, and it's not going to be a panacea by any means. But it will. Um, it does create a system that involves the city attorney, the public defender, uh, the social workers, the health department. There's a wide array of agencies and uh, institutions within each county that will be dealing with these petitions and then deciding what's an appropriate kind of treatment and when does it begin and then oversight, so repeated hearings and looking into is the person following the treatment plan and if not, you know, what happens then? Yeah, what does happen then if they don't follow the treatment plan? (laughs) Well, bottom line, uh, they're hoping for the black robe effect, uh, which means that if you're in a court and there's some dude or woman sitting up high wearing a black robe telling you what to do uh, in the form of a judge that you are more likely to do it. But in fact, there's nothing in this law that compels people to take medication or to even follow the plan. So there is uh, a real possibility that some of these folks may just to say, you know what, it's not for me, not going to do it. They can walk out. Now, it, that would also open the door to a, another level of um, oversight where they would have even fewer civil rights, which would be conservatorship, and our other guests can speak mm-hmm. to that. Uh, but they're real, I think that's the bottom line. They're really, there really isn't anything to compel force people to follow this plan, take their medication, and do the things that professionals say would be necessary to stabilize them and, and help them get well. Do we have any figures or estimates for how many people we might expect would at least go into the top of the pipeline here, either locally or you know, state level? Well, the uh, LEO estimates that about uh, 5,600 Californians would qualify for this here in uh, San Francisco. I think we're thinking roughly 1,000, maybe a little less, a little bit more. Um, and that's partly why they're having these uh, seven counties go first, these pilot counties, because they really don't know. I mean, how many people are going to petition? How many will be accepted by the court? How well will it work out? Will there be beds for them? Will there be space for them? And I think that is really the big um, outstanding question here is, will there be enough room once somebody is referred to treatment? Where will they go? Yeah. How did San Francisco end up as one of the cities piloting this? 
Well, uh, you know, San Francisco, of course, has a big infrastructure already. Uh, you know, some of these counties that are on this list, like Glen County, which is like north of Lake County and uh, Tuolumne County, they don't have many resources for this sort of thing. San Francisco, Orange County, L.A. County, uh, San Diego County, those are the, some of the urban counties going first. You know, we, we spend over a million dollars a day right now on all the different aspects of homelessness that we, um, you know, that we confront in the city. Obviously, uh, we've tried many different things, navigation centers, continuum of care. I mean, every mayor has come in with a new mm-hmm. name for the system. Uh, and so I think that there is a sense that what we're doing now isn't working. Uh, that there are too many people on the streets who are suffering uh, and who need help. And uh, let's try something different, even though we don't know if it's really going to work. And, you know, going back to Sacramento, there were just two no votes in the entire state legislature. <laughs> so there was bipartisan support for this for you know various reasons and the sense that, you know, look, this status quo is not acceptable. Yeah. I mean, do you think people's expectations of what this law is going to do and what these courts are going to do um, are overinflated? Well, it depends on who you mean. I mean, I think most people out there in the world probably don't really know much about it because they have other things on their minds generally. Uh, but I think the people who are, have been involved in planning for this are hopeful but skeptical. You know, I think, uh, and some of you know, mm-hmm. other guests down down the road here in the hour can speak to that. But you know, I think there is concern that there won't be enough money, and not enough beds, not enough uh, people to help. You know, the folks that need the help. Um, and I think there's also sometimes a little bit of a sense that San Francisco hasn't followed through on some of the initiatives that it has already taken. Uh, and so, is this just another? Are we just digging up another seedling here and like put, planting a new one? What's going on? Uh, and you know, again, that's what pilot projects do. You'll they'll get more data from these counties, and they'll see like, does it need to be tweaked? Do they need more money? Is it completely unreasonable? I mean, there have been other laws that have been passed aimed at folks on the streets with mental illness that really have fallen way short of expectations and hopes. And we'll see if Care Courts is yeah. another one of those. Talk about the coming implementation of Care Court across the state in San Francisco, joined by Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, as well as co-host of Political Breakdown. Earlier, we were joined by Susan Telementis Eggman, co-author of the bill from California's 5th District. And we want to hear from you. What are your questions about Care Court? You can give us a call. Number is 866-733-6786. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the coming implementation of Care Court across the state and in San Francisco. Been joined by Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host the excellent podcast Political Breakdown. Want to add a few other voices into the conversation. Eric Harris is director of public policy for Disability Rights California. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. Eric, um, under the program, people who are given a court-ordered care plan can choose not to participate, but Disability Rights California has been arguing that it still could lead to violations of civil liberties and coerced care. Tell tell me why you think so. Yes, thank you again so much for having me. Um, Your guest earlier spoke uh, about the black robe effect, and that black robe effect can be very impactful Um, especially when you're talking about the communities that are going to be impacted by this law. Um, We're talking about people with significant mental health disabilities um, and especially people who are black um, and other people of color who might have a sense of fear or lack of trust um, with the court system. So when you bring in um, black the black robe effect, the courts, um, and in some cases law enforcement can Um, select folks um, to be in the care court system and other people um, who are a part of government, um, it can really bring uh, a sense of fear um, and more coercion for folks um, who otherwise would not have chosen um, to undergo treatment or care. Um, And if they choose not to, of course, um, they could um, be under a conservatorship. I mean, Eric, for a lot of people listening to this program, who've been dealing with people in the streets with untreated mental illness. I mean, it can be scary and difficult. I mean, what do you say to people who are just like, why am I dealing with people with severe untreated mental illness rather than mental health professionals? Like, why why should every possible uh, lever not be used to kind of get people into, into some kind of treatment? That's a really good question. And I would say that the two main points that Disability Rights California and dozens of other organizations who oppose this bill throughout the process have been saying is that we are in a housing crisis in California. We've been in one for years um, and we are in a mental health services crisis in California. Um, People who uh, might have otherwise been able to get um, services are not able to get those services. And I know you spoke earlier about the lack of um, people who are in these spaces, the lack of money um, funding going towards these efforts. Um, And so I would say that this um, idea of care courts um, is an idea that isn't all the way flushed out and all the way thought through. Mm -hmm. There are other ways um, that we can better serve the community that we're talking about. And some of those ideas have been brought forward by organizations like Disability Rights California and other um, disability organizations, peer-run organizations served uh, serving people with mental health disabilities by people with mental health disabilities for their communities, and other groups and organizations that fight for housing, other civil rights, um, and other groups uh, uh, of folks who've, who've opposed this type of law. Thanks, Eric Harris, Director of Public Policy for Disability Rights California. I'm going to bring in a couple other uh, voices in the conversation as well. Tal Clement is Deputy Public Defender in the Mental Health Unit with the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Welcome, Tal. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks for joining us. 
And Raphael Mandelman represents District 8 on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Welcome, Supervisor Mandelman. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, I want to talk to you first about why why and how the Public Defender's Office is going to be involved in this rollout. Talk to me about that. Well, um, this care court, although it's not uh, involuntary treatment or it's not uh, putting people in locked facilities or forcing medication, still involves substantial liberty interests. Uh, we're involved because we represent people at all stages and, and at different uh, levels of the mental health system. And this is an additional court that will infringe on people's liberty. So we're there to represent their um, liberty interests, but also to work collaboratively with the other partners who are involved to make sure that if somebody is participating, they're participating in the least restrictive environment and they're getting the supports and services that they need. Yeah. I mean, earlier, um, Scott Schaefer was telling us about the conservatorships and other ways that people are, you know, can be can be held by the state who are having mental health crisis. Um, and you currently work in the mental health unit. So how is that work going to be similar or different from the care court system? Well, we, we work at all levels of the mental health system. We're in the hospitals uh, representing people who um, the hospital is seeking to detain involuntarily. We're working uh, in the, unfortunately, in the criminal justice system, obviously, working with the same population, making sure that um, cases are handled appropriately and people are funneled to treatment as opposed to incarceration. And we also work in the conservatorship proceedings where, again, uh, the government can step in and involuntarily treat you in a locked facility or force you to take medication. This is supposed to be different. Um, it's supposed to result in people being placed in community settings. There's no mechanism to force people to take medication. But as has been hinted, there is going to be a black robe effect. Um, there is going to be a coercive, uh, potential coercive environment that people will be facing. And so it's our job to, to be in the courtroom standing up for people's rights, make sure that they feel that their rights are being heard, protected, and to make sure that they're not... Um, they're placed in the least restrictive alternative environment. Yeah. Let's bring in a, a caller who has uh, some questions about some resource constraints. Mark in San Francisco, welcome. Hi, thank you. I'm a, I'm a doctor and I run a psychiatric hospital in a jail. And too often I have patients who get uh, their, their criminal charges are adjudicated. They get released to like psychiatric emergency and they're out on the streets within hours, literally hours. And and so I, I guess my question is, is that if they don't have the teeth of something like a 5150 or an involuntary psychiatric hold, how are we going to get the treatment there? I, I just worry that this is just going to be another thing that we're going to throw money at and nothing's going to change. Yeah. Scott Schaefer, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is an open question. Uh, and again, I think it comes back to the sense that what we're doing now isn't working um, and that we should try something different. Maybe this will be uh, really effective. Maybe it won't be. Uh, but, you know, the call at Mark's, Mark's point is a good one. Um, and we should also remember that, you know, the people who, in California who have mental illness, just a small fraction of them are on the streets. Uh, you know, and this program is really aimed at a sl just a small slice of them. So this is, you know, there are many, many people here, some in the law enforcement uh, system, some living at home, you know, all kinds of places uh, that are not going to be eligible for this program. So, but I do think that, uh, yeah, I think that without that compulsory aspect of this, there is a big question. Yeah, I just, I just like to say, I think there's a mis misconception that there are people uh, with mental illness 
mental health uh, disabilities who don't want to access voluntary treatment. We also have a capacity issue. And um, we have situations where people have to wait in long lines to access residential treatment facilities where there's substantial waits for supportive housing environments uh, where we have a, a workforce issue. We don't have enough social workers who can work with people in the community to get them connected to treatment. So I do think that there's a, a misconception that what we're seeing on the streets is a result of people not wanting help or not wanting to uh, be treated. And it's also a, a result of a, a failure to adequately address capacity. And that's a failure that's been in existence for the last 50, 60 years. And we've just started to increase capacity and address it. So, mm. Supervisor Mandelman, um, given those constraints. <laughs> um, how do you think this could affect the ability of the city to provide care for people? Yeah, well, it's it's an open question. Um, I've supported Care Court. Um, I sort of believe, you know, if, if folks are ha have holding a tool out there, we should take every tool we can we can use. Um, I think Scott's right, though, that this is probably only going to affect a relatively small number of folks. Um, I think that there may be people for whom that black robe effect um, might be exactly the right thing. But if you look at some of the other models we've tried in San Francisco, if you look at our um, implementation of assisted outpatient treatment, um, which uh, Tal's office is involved in, um, you know, mostly we are actually not bringing folks in there uh, except voluntarily. Um, and we're only, you know, putting, say, 10 to 20 folks uh, through at a time in, in that court, which is very similar. The thinking around assisted outpatient treatment, Laura's law, is very similar, that getting folks in front of a judge, may there may be a black robe effect. The two fundamental problems um, are, you know, for the most acute people, those, those are likely to be the people who are most treatment resistant, and this is probably not the, the solution for them. And then the other problem of a lack of appropriate places is a problem for everybody in the system. To Susan Eggman's credit and the governor's credit, they're trying to address that in other ways and through other bills. But um, you know, for this, I, I think we need to be really um, you know uh, reasonable about our expectations. And you know, if we can help a few folks with it, great. And we need to do a bunch of other stuff. Tal, do you worry that the added strain on the system might actually make things worse? Yeah, I you know I read something that described the mental health system in California as a leaky canoe. Um, there are lots of gaps in services. People can't get uh, help in the community that they need, and so we oftentimes rely on more acute settings, locked facilities. And what we, we're potentially doing here is adding, uh, you know, even in San Francisco, thousands potentially of people to, to that leaky canoe, uh, and it's not going to necessarily hold everybody. And so we really need to be honest and transparent about our, our capacity. Uh, we need to do more to... Uh, build born care facilities in San Francisco where people can live in the community, more supportive housing where people can access um, services where they're living as opposed to in the hospital. There's a lot that we need to do to build capacity. Yeah. Scott Schaefer, I mean, I hear those solutions as like long-term solutions, but there's problems on the street like today and yesterday and two days ago. And I think that's what people want to see addressed. They do, and it's frustrating for everyone, including, I think, the people who are trying to help those who are unhoused living on the streets. I mean, it's it's a terribly frustrating thing. I don't think anyone feels that allowing folks who are seriously mentally ill, suffering from addiction, any number of other things, should be should be dealing with that on the streets, you know? So there is that. It is, you know, but it's, you're right. It's not, it's not like we're doing nothing. We're doing a lot of things. It just hasn't really had an impact in terms of something visible that people feel is making a difference. I will say just quickly, and we can talk more about this, but there are going to be two things on the March ballot, a $6.3 billion bond measure to build 
uh, to build f- more capacity for these sorts of things. And also uh, another uh, ballot measure that will allow some of the money the, on, from the millionaire tax that uh, voters passed in 2004 to be used for housing people, uh, not just on mental health services, but on housing for people with mental illness who are living on the streets and uh, who need that. So there is potentially, if voters say yes, some you know some money in the pipeline. But again, it all takes time. Yeah. Uh, One of our listeners, Tom, writes in to say, since the law doesn't compel treatment, how are we hoping to encourage the majority of potential clients and program participants to cooperate given the prevalence of significant substance use addiction among the mentally ill population in San Francisco? How are we expecting a different outcome given the lack of motivation to change in folks that are still pre-contemplative toward any sort of treatment? Um, Eric Harris, Director of Public Policy for Disability Rights California, I mean, what, what would you say to that? Yeah, I, I would say that that's where um, cultural competency, that's where multiple touches are so important and laying groundwork. And I know, you know, the urgency is right now because we see people on the street now and people are concerned now with their family members, with their loved ones. And I would just say that um, this is a very complex um, population in terms of being able to reach out to them, being able to follow up knowing that you're going to get disappointed at times if if maybe it's difficult to follow through, maybe it's difficult to connect. Um, so I would say that, that the biggest thing is making sure that we have uh, uh, multiple touches, making sure that there are culturally competent uh, communities for them to be embraced and welcomed. As a, as a Black disabled man myself, um, it wasn't until I was um, connected with other black disabled people where I felt a sense of community and I wanted to follow up and I wanted to be closely connected with that group. Um, And I would say the same thing is true for people with a variety of disabilities, including people with significant mental health disabilities. So I I just think that those are the the best ways to really get the types of results that we need, not um, kind of a one hit approach where um, folks, you know, go to somebody one time or bring them into court one time and expect a final result. Yeah, Supervisor uh, Mandelman, I mean, you've been working on this issue in your district for a while. What are the different things you've seen work or not work? If, if yeah. yeah, I mean, I we in my office and you know, frankly, although the Castro has its challenges, they're small in comparison to some other neighborhoods. But we, we keep a list of folks who are repeatedly getting into trouble with the criminal justice system or uh, our public health system, if to the extent we're able to hear about it. Um, sometimes some of the data sharing is hard. But, you know, we see these people. I know many of the folks I pass on the street by name, and it is not a lack of touches. I mean, the, the notion that folks are not getting touched by our system systems, they're getting touched all the time by both the criminal justice system and the public health system and the outreach. And I think that what we lack in San Francisco is actually effective systems for dealing with folks who, in my view, actually can't make decisions for themselves and we shouldn't ask them to. And I think one of the things that I find upsetting about some of the advocacy from the disability rights community is certainly we need to recognize the autonomy of folks with with uh, with mental illnesses and, and all kinds of disabilities. But what about the ability of that person to actually fully self-actualize or met more better, more, more effect strongly self-actualize as the person that they could be without that mental illness? And I approach this as someone who had a, severe, a severely mentally ill mother. Like, I think that when we leave folks out there in the, the soup of mental illness and and addiction and uh, and say that we're preserving their autonomy in some way. And uh, I think we're just making a terrible, terrible mistake. 
talk about I, I one of the things that I think is kind of hovering in the background is that where a lot of folks end up is in jail and in prison, right? Um, it, uh, one way or another, because they've spent time on the streets and they're having trouble, um, you know, with their mental health. Um, do you think this serves as a potential diversion out of that? It's hard to, hard to say. I, I do think one of the things that we're not talking about is is the context of all of this is a housing crisis in San Francisco. You can have a lot of touches. You can meet with people on the street. But if you're not going to put them in a supportive housing environment where they have a safe place to keep their medications, where there's on-site social workers, uh, you know, their chances of success are, are minimal. And so jail's not the answer. Neither is shelters. Neither is putting someone in a congregate setting who has a psychotic disorder and perhaps paranoia and delusions, and then putting them in that environment is also not a recipe for success. So I, I think there's a, a middle ground here. I mean, this is potentially an opportunity if we can get people who are in care court into supportive long-term housing. Um, perhaps we can change a trajectory, you know, and, and put someone on a different pathway. One, one question I have, and maybe Supervisor, you know the answer to this, is what happens to these folks who are in the process of, you know, the system and haven't quite yet been given a treatment plan? Like, are they, and they're living on the street, do they get housing while this is going on? Because if not, they could just disappear. Right. Well, one of the things about care courts as as a solution, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about how this is going to work because a care court petition to work its way through the system is going to take months, right? And if this is someone who's voluntarily going to be willing to accept um, some kind of treatment program, which, you know, is, is what we're relying on, do we really need all of that legal process and time to get them to the point where four or five months down the road, a judge says, here's your, you know, get, get into a permanent supportive housing unit. And we'd really like to encourage you to comply with your with your medication program. I'm guessing that was a concession to some of the concerns people had about civil liberties. Like we're going to we're going to have lots of guardrails on this to make sure it isn't abused. We put tons of guardrails, though, onto onto a system that is fundamentally voluntary. So I understand the need for for tremendous guardrails around things like conservatorship and and ultimately with conservatorship. And we have folks in the jail right now who could be conserved. We have folks being touched all the time who could be conserved if we actually had the appropriate facilities for them, which probably isn't a PSH unit. It probably, at least at the start, is permanent supportive housing, permanent yeah. supportive housing is probably a, a locked, a locked uh, facility or potentially even a board and care. Those are the two types of facilities very expensive that we absolutely lack in San Francisco. We're talking about the implementation of care court across the state and in San Francisco, joined by Supervisor Raphael Mandelman, represents District 8, Scott Schaefer, Senior Editor for KQD's California Politics and Government Desk, Todd Clement, Deputy Public Defender in the Mental Health Unit in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, and Eric Harris, Director of Public Policy with Disability Rights California. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, been doing reporting on Care Court. And we're also joined by Tal Clement, who's a deputy public defender in the mental health unit in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, Supervisor Mandelman of District 8, and Eric Harris, Director of Public Policy for Disability Rights California. Earlier, we were joined by Susan Talmentis Eggman, who's state senator for California's 5th District and co-authored SB 1338, which is the legislation which established the care court in California. On the line, we've got Judge Michael Beggert, uh, who is going to be working on some of these cases. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for paying attention to what's a very important issue for our community. Thanks so much. Um, As supervising judge for care court, I mean, what are your thoughts about finding that balance between preserving civil liberties and ensuring care for people who may have you know, acute mental health needs. So I do appreciate uh, both sides of this discussion, and I think uh, that we do have some very serious concerns because the mental health system and the medical care system uh, and the criminal justice system and the judicial system have not always gotten these issues right. And so I understand and appreciate that people have concerns about uh, relying on the decisions of those institutions to make important decisions about people's rights. I also understand that we have a very serious challenge uh, and that I think we're all trying to move in the same direction to help people who have uh, conditions and conditions that are unusual because they prevent the individual from understanding that they actually have an illness. Uh, So I will be trying to balance those concerns uh, as best possible under the framework that Mm. the legislature has provided. Are you anticipating backlogs in people accessing the court? Uh, I don't anticipate backlogs in people accessing the court. The court's well-equipped to process uh, the cases, uh, and uh, the the concern is, uh, as several people have pointed out, that this is voluntary, and we need to engage with people early, and they need to see positive results from their engagement, and that's going to be the challenge. The challenge will be the availability of resources. Yeah. What do you think about the argument that being pulled in front of a court in a way that feels like you're getting involved with the criminal justice system could be harmful or create, you know, an aversion to people engaging in the services. That's a real concern. Uh, And I think that that is some of the reason why the law ended up uh, where it did, because there's a lot of science and studies that say that um, in a lot of contexts, compelling treatment is not uh, effective or not as effective as uh, getting people to engage 
of their own volition. So my objective is going to be to develop a relationship with each person, uh, a relationship based on trust, and try to give them a sense that they have control over their destiny and they have some agency in the process. And then uh, hopefully by getting them access to appropriate treatment to restore their sense of dignity. Um, Judge, before we let you go, what are you most worried about slash focused on in the implementation of CareCord here in the city? Whether we'll have the services and whether we'll have the quality of services that we need. A lot of times we talk uh, about uh, mental health care and uh, substance use programs just in terms of the number of beds that we have or the number of slots that we have in a program. Uh, We also need to pay attention to what the quality of those services is, because if you put somebody into a really good program uh, that's that's appropriate and also comfortable, attractive, uh, they're a lot more likely to stay and accept the treatment than if they're in something that just represents uh, a bed that uh, none of us would care to stay in. Hey, thank you very much, Judge Michael Beggart, Care Court Supervising. Judge, thanks so much for uh, for calling in. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Got a bunch of calls um, on the line as well. I want to go to uh, Ken here in San Francisco. Welcome. Ken, you there? Hello. Hey, Ken, go ahead. Hello. Hey, Ken, go Oh, sorry, i got to turn my radio down. Hi, I'm Ken, Ken Epstein from San Francisco, and I'm a social worker. I have a quick comment and a question. Um, the comment is, um, I, I do not have an answer to this really complicated question, and I appreciate all of the speakers' perspectives. Uh, and I know that it's not an either-or question of this or that. There is one thing I want to point out and ask a question about. Having worked as a social worker for four decades, we have never had um, a larger problem in the availability of our workforce. Mm. Our workforce is underpaid. Everyone is nodding here. Undervalued, <laughs> often blamed for the circumstances that are happening with folks. And I don't see a clear recognition of our need to step forward now and create, recruit, Mm -hmm. Um, legislate ways to have a better trained um, workforce to be able to work with the problems that are being identified today. So I was wondering from the speakers, the right now question of the existential problem of a shortage in our workforce here and across the country that needs to be addressed right now. Yeah, Ken, thank you so much for that. I'll add to that, too, that one of the things we've heard on the program a lot is uh, people don't get paid enough. They have to live two hours away and then drive in. They get paid almost nothing. Um, Supervisor, man, what what can we do about this? It's a huge problem. I mean, we we, uh, at the Board of Supervisors and in Public Health have been working these last um, few years to try and open up additional behavioral health beds. And the Department of Public Health has a plan to open up 400. Um, and many of the beds that they've opened are unavailable because they're under they're not staffed. The the not so we were claiming that we've opened a bed uh, at a particular nonprofit, but that nonprofit is uh, is not able to fill that bed because they don't have the staff. We have you know a commitment to treatment on demand in the city, but we're hearing from our frontline responders, police and fire, that when people you know 
you know, they encounter on the streets are like, you know what, I'm ready to go into into a program. And they show up at the detox facility and the detox facility can't take them. And that's not even getting to the longer term uh, care needs of folks who need to be in a, in, in a long term residential situation. It's a huge problem. Um, we need to raise wages. We need to ad- address right. the, you know, that the housing challenges for folks. Um, it's it's a com- it's as complicated as anything else we've talked about this morning to, to try to fix. Scott, you see anything, any movement on that in the legislature to try and address that kind of need? Specifically in this... In that workforce in realm, yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, you know, California just completed its uh, session up in the, the legislative, legislative session, and labor had a number of big wins. I mean, there has certainly the minimum wage has gone up for people uh, and, you know, more time off. Uh, when you're sick, those kinds of things. We're waiting to see what the governor does on those, some of those. But, you know, this is a, it is a fundamental problem and it goes well beyond, you know, the mental health, social work, health system. It's uh, all kinds of people who we rely on in a place like San Francisco to keep the city functioning, who figure out, I can just live in Tracy and, you know, work at, you know, what XYZ place and not have to commute 90 minutes to get into the city. And, you know, of course, you would talk about raising wages for you know, folks who work for nonprofits or who work for the you know health department, that costs money. Right. You know, and it, it, it's you know we're right now cutting budgets in San Francisco, and you know there was a deficit at the state level as well. Um, so, you know, it's kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Like, we, okay, we're gonna we're gonna raise wages, but that that's a government cost or a nonprofit cost that may or may not be sustainable. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, there, there, there isn't an easy answer to this. And t- part of it, of yeah. course, is housing, 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 right. housing. Right. You Tax know, on because everything so much else. of people's yeah. inability to live here is that they can't afford housing. Yeah. Uh, another listener, uh, Teresa, writes in to say, I'm the director and managing attorney of the Homeless Advocacy Project. Care Court does not apply only to homeless people, she wants to note, although that may be most of the respondents. I also want to point out that the public defender is not the only entity that will be representing respondents in care court. The legislation actually has a preference for qualified legal services providers to represent them. In San Francisco, that will be Homeless Advocacy Project of the Justice and Diversity Center and Legal Assistance for the Elderly. Yeah, I'm very excited to work with the Homeless Advocacy Project and the Legal Assistance for the Elderly. I should have mentioned them earlier. And they bring uh, expertise, particularly in housing advocacy and making sure that people are reasonably accommodated in, in supporting housing, supportive housing environments and other ho- hotel environments. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited to work with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's bring in Buck in San Francisco. Welcome, Buck. Hi. Um, I've worked in affordable housing for over 50 years. Supervisor Mandelman is 100% right. Are we doing this work to give people the right to die mentally ill, substance abusing, alone, under a bridge somewhere? I feel like we should be uh, we should be looking out for our brothers and sisters, even if it means taking them off the street against their will. This conversation is skewed so far out of reality sometimes that and I'm, I, I worked in the public defender's office in the mental health unit before any of you were born in 1976. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like we're out of touch. We're old, Buck. We I don't know. I think we're... <laughs> yeah, Buck, thank you so much uh, for that. I mean, I think, you know, honestly, Scott Schaefer, um, you know, you do a lot of reporting on this. Um, I walk through the mission on a regular basis. I think we both probably encounter that, uh, you know, that kind of comment or that that sense of uh, what's happening on the streets actually quite often. Very. I walked uh, down Mission Street yesterday, uh, as a matter of fact. It was a lovely sunny day. And, yeah, there are a lot of people with a lot of problems on the streets. And, you know, it, it's just I think there's something that, I, you know, 
has been called compassion fatigue also. You know, this mm-hmm. is a very compassionate city and in many cases state. Uh, and people uh, want to help folks, but they also, like you said earlier, Alexis, you know, they're, why am I having to confront this when I walk down the street? You know, it's something that uh, we feel like in a city with a, what is it, $14 billion budget? It's crazy how big mm-hmm. our budget is. Our budget is way bigger than the number of states yeah, in this yeah, county. Yeah. Uh, and so people wonder why don't we see more results for all the money that we're spending in the, at the county level and at the state level, and it is yeah. a frustration for everyone. Yeah. A uh, couple comments. Uh, Kim writes, uh, we need care facilities for the significant number of people who will never be able to live independently. Many people simply need medication case management, which would provide oversight of medica- medications, but most importantly, compel those who cannot make rational decisions to take their own medication patients with schizophrenia in particular. Those arguing against care court have not offered salient solutions to the problem and arguably have been part of the problem while not being good advocates. Dante on Discord says, can we start with ending the demonization of houselessness and mental health? I see time and time again people complaining about neighbors that act strange and law enforcement clearing camps. What's the end game? This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org slash donate. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've got some more uh, calls on the line, but before we go there, I want to ask um, Eric Harris, uh, Director of Public Policy with Disability Rights California, even though you opposed Care Court, you have been involved in monitoring sort of the implementation of the uh, of the process. What's your take on the ways to make this the most effective program it can be, even though we know that you you opposed it? Yeah. Um, so I I think the, the best way um, moving forward is to get as much data um, uh, as possible. So the data from the people who are going through the process, um, data from government officials, data from medical officials, um, all the folks who are involved, I think it's really important to get the data from care courts, um, but especially from the people with lived experience with um, schizophrenia and other psychosis disabilities. Those are the people that we've worked really closely with, um, many of whom um, I work with on a regular basis almost every day um, that have expressed their concerns. And I think hearing from them, getting their perspectives on how this is all um, going and what their experiences have been um, is going to be really crucial as we start this process. Uh, Supervisor Manwood, do you know what the data and reporting requirements are around this? That is an excellent question. And um, I mean, I know, I mean, we're, we're, it's a pilot. So we're, we are supposed to be gathering there. That has been part, I believe, of the conversations. For, and actually, Tal has, may have been part of some of those yeah. conversations. But the, the different actors, DA, or not the, the public defender, rather, right, right. the mayor's office, the DPH, have all been talking, I think, about how to, how to set this up. Yeah. Right. There's some, uh, a lot of data requirements that are contained in the statute. And at the state level, we've been engaging with other partners and figuring out the best ways to collect that data and what the benchmarks are. And hmm. So there's a lot of work that's going into that. There are some potential sanctions for counties that don't implement this properly or fully. Right, for people who fall out of their care plan, right, at a certain level. Yeah, I'm not sure what the, what the actual criteria for falling short would be. And, you know, 
I think it's a sanction that's imposed by the judge on the county for failing to uh, uh, meet their obligations under care court. And they, they're pricey. I think it can be $25,000, um, you know, for – and then that money is supposed to get put back into your behavioral health system, theoretically. Um, so there is a little there, – there's supposed to be, a, you know, a forcing a mechanism prods, yeah. to, to, to make the counties actually provide the services. And that was another kind of embedded idea <laughs> in here. But I think accountability is key, not just for this, but for so many other things. I mean, we've seen over the years, you know, San Francisco, as I said, spends a ton of money on SROs and all kinds of services. And, you know, a lot of these nonprofits, I think there's a sense that sometimes they fall short and there is not enough accountability. And, you know, sometimes audits by the city have borne that out. So, you know, I I think you can't have too much oversight. Well, maybe you can. It's it's a good thing to have oversight and accountability. I'll just leave it at that. Um, Let's bring in one last call. Casey in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi. Um, I'm calling because I have a sister who's schizophrenic. She's older than I am. And she had housing. Um, She was living with my father for many, many years. And she had trouble staying on her medication. And it's a long, long story, believe me. But she doesn't trust the family. So it's very Mm -hmm. difficult for us to get her to stay on her medication. But she would occasionally check herself into the emergency room and they would get her back on her medication. And I asked, like, could we have a social worker come and check if she's on her medication or not, or just once in a while visit her for reminding her? And they said she has to request that. Um, And, of course, she didn't. And so now, um, after many years and sort of a worsening situation, she's just left home and we don't know where she is. Oh, man. And I feel like... If we could, I mean, I don't want to take away her autonomy. And when, what I'm hearing is like, there's this huge debate, like, should we take away people's autonomy so that they can have housing um, or services? And I feel like, is, I mean, my question, I guess, is, are there any more moderate adjustments to the way things are done? Supervisor Manaman wants to jump in, Casey. Well, I, I do think it's a little bit of a binary. I mean, care court is supposed to be in that middle space of not exactly compelling, but working with people. And maybe by focusing on a, on a relatively small number of folks and really getting the different agencies coordinated around them, we'll be able to make progress. But at some level, there are folks who in those, not consistently, but in some moments need to have somebody else step in and make a decision for them and say, no, you're going to stay in this place or no, you're going to take this medication. And California has not figured out how to do that since Lannerman Petrus Short was enacted in the 1960s and we started closing the mental hospitals and we still haven't figured it out. I'm hopeful these measures that are on the ballot next year may help us get there. But, um, yeah. you know, it's it's a real problem. In case you really hope your sister gets the help she needs. Thanks for sharing this story with us. That really is. That's that's the problem right there. Um, we're, we've we been joined this morning to talk about care court implementation by Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Tal Clement, deputy public defender in the mental health unit of the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. Eric Harris of Disability Rights California. Supervisor Mandelman representing District 8. And earlier we were joined by Susan Talmontis Eggman and Judge Michael Beggart. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.